Hello everyone and welcome to an especially macabre edition of uh, Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Hazmat Grizzly and joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, it's the curse of the mummy's tomb, it's Dead Gravis. How the devil are you sir? Good, thanks. Yeah, I was going to suggest Deadwing Gravies, so we're, we're very much uh, in sync there. Yeah, we'd say normally great minds think alike, but it's actually just like lazy punning. And yeah, it was kind of it's been done, hasn't it? Halloween puns. We really are scraping the bottom of the barrel. And when it comes to ours, we are doing a Halloween episode. Given it was Halloween two days ago, we thought we'd shamelessly cash in on uh, that kind of ruthlessly commercialised holiday. It's not even a holiday, is it? I don't know what is Halloween. I don't even get it. Is it, it's an old Christian thing, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's kind of to, I believe it's just time to acknowledge the dead and ward off spirits. Well, at least that's what the um, the jack-o'-lantern part of it is, is to do with keeping the spirits away. Mm. I read something interesting once. They said that like trick-or-treating and Halloween kind of capery wasn't really observed in Britain until after 1982. Can you, can you think of why that would be, Ed? The year makes me think it might be to do with E.T., Mm, is that bang on? It's the release of ET. It was a kind of really popularised trick or treating in in the UK, and now it's a huge thing. I went to a friend's house last night who lives in a flat, so I wouldn't have to deal with anyone knocking on my door. That's how much into the spirit of it I got. Do you get any uh, trick or treaters out in the Everglades, Ed? No, not currently. Let's face it, Florida is it's not the sort of place where people knocking on people's doors in the middle of the night that sort of thing probably doesn't end well. Mm, there's, there's a that kind of bullshit that's not going to wash. Yeah, so uh, so there are not many trick-or-treaters. Lots of people do actually put decorations and stuff up, and there's a nice kind of festive atmosphere, although festive's kind of a weird term. Like, at, at work, they did have a thing where people who have kids can kind of bring their kids in, and people who want to take part put out bowls of candy, and, and people go around and pick them up and everything. So that's quite a nice thing. That That's the most kind of Halloween-y thing to, to happen uh, in my own personal sphere over the last couple of days. Mm, yeah, yeah. If you're going to do it, though, stay safe. Go with an adult and uh, stick to well-lit streets. Um, or an office yeah. building, in my case. Exactly. Uh, that's the safest place to do it. And you might be asked to run some stuff to the copier as well while you're there, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, against some kind of child labour law, one would imagine. Before we get into the spooky stuff, we'll kind of talk about the news, as we always do at the start. It's been a huge opening for Spectre, the new James Bond film. It's done $80 million in a week um, and hasn't opened in America yet. Uh, a massive $63 million of those dollars were just from the UK. That's absurd. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of to be expected considering what a huge hit Skyfall was. But mm. even so, I think the the extent to which the Bond films have grown in, in under uh, Daniel Craig's tenure is very very impressive you're getting to the sort of the levels that haven't been seen since since connery's day really Mm. yeah it's it's exceeded skyfall already i wonder if the drop-off will be sharper when the kind of word of mouth gets around because uh reviews for spectre have been slightly patchier than they were for skyfall which was kind of universally kind of liked that tends to happen with hugely successful sequels as you do have a bigger opening and then things kind of drop off, similar to how uh, what we saw earlier this year with the Avengers Age of Ultron, that had exactly the same pattern. Uh, so if people are less excited about this one, then you know we'll probably see the same sort of thing, but Eon will walk away with another hugely successful film under their belt. 
Hmm. And am I right in thinking that Sony Pictures' deal has expired for Bond now, or is it the next film expires? I believe it's expired with this one. Wow. So is is that going to be kind of a bidding war? Is is that how it works, or does it revert to someone else? Yeah, I think it would be a bidding war because who are Eon? Obviously, I think still own the rights to the actual to make the Bond films and officially under that license, but there's limits to what they can do on their own. So they need to have someone who uh, front the hundreds of millions of dollars it mean it needs to make one and also the distribution stuff. So it will be... But uh, I imagine the rights will be a lot more expensive for that partnership now than they were when Sony took them on. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's always a kind of unknown quantity when they change the, the bond, as it were. And uh, kind of the press's stuff has been kind of winding on perspective the last couple of weeks and and you know we've talked about daniel craig and and who's he's gonna his replacement is gonna be uh at length but what has generally come out of the press and stuff this week and the junkets is that daniel craig has a very thinly veiled contempt for playing james bond it's only really matched by connery's kind of dislike of the character it does seem to be the kind of character where playing it obviously gives you a great deal of money and a lot of exposure and a lot of more opportunity but at the same time it must be very hard not to get typecast as that because I remember that that was or I remember reading that that was one of Connery's big concerns was that Mm. he deliberately would choose incredibly unbond like roles because he was afraid that was just going to define his whole career and I imagine if you're someone like Daniel Craig who had built something of a, a career in a kind of a low level way as a character actor for quite a few years, it must get a bit wearying to suddenly be so in the public eye in a way that you would never have had as, you know, the star of Enduring Love. Yeah. Or, yeah, the guy in the wig in Munich. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's going to be weird to kind of see what he returns to. I think he's probably got enough cash airs and he to, to not dolt in it. <laughs> yeah, I think he's he'd probably be best returning to smaller roles that allow him to stretch himself a bit more, but you just wonder if he's reached that, encounters the same problem that Robert Downey Jr. has, where or or Johnny Depp has, where if even if you want to return to the smaller roles, suddenly your asking price is a lot higher. Mm, mm. Speaking of Johnny Depp, kind of picking up on something you kind of tweeted about this week, he's reportedly signed on for the new Edgar Wright film, which is not just the new Edgar Wright film, it's an adaptation of a Neil Gaiman book. And that seems exciting until you read the words Johnny Depp. Yeah, I joked that two-thirds of the sentence that Edgar Wright is adapting a Neil Gaiman short story starring Johnny Depp make me very excited. And and <laughs> as someone pointed out, actually three-quarters of it are very exciting because it's also being, uh, the screenplay's being written or co-written by Brett McKenzie of Flight of the Concords. So, oh wow! I didn't know that. Yeah, so there's a lot of factors there that make me think this could be really good. But then you have Johnny Depp, <laughs> and mm. he is not the mark of quality that he once was. Yeah, he. Uh, I mean, we'll probably mention it in the end of year episode. But he's done some terrible things this year, and he has rapidly kind of burnt all his bridges. I'd always seem to give him the benefit of the doubt because he was always very watchable and kind of in anything really. And now it's kind of tiresome, epitomised really by that cologne advert he's doing, which is really dreadful. It might be worse, one of the worst things he's done, I think. And it kind of, <laughs> even though it's Johnny Depp and he is Jack Sparrow in 
Pirates of the Caribbean '96 or whatever they're on. I saw that kind of advert, and I was like, "Oh, that's just that's cheapened it." Yeah, the days when he would show up on an episode of the Fast Show just because he was an enthusiast for it, and it was a funny thing to do, and it was quite charming because you thought, "Hey, Johnny Depp's a kind of a big star, and he's showing up on this British sketch show that he really likes." Those days seem to be pretty far gone, and as as good as the reviews have been for him in Black Mass, there's it doesn't give me hope that he can kind of turn out of the the spiral that his career has become in quality terms obviously commercially he's probably you know the richest he's ever been and and, and the idea of him working with Edgar Wright it c- could be very appealing if Edgar Wright can rein him in but mm. you you never know with someone like Johnny Depp whether or not he's going to show up and do good work or if he'll just kind of steamroll it with his superstar ego yeah yeah We'll see. We'll see. I don't know whether that's probably due out kind of year after next, but uh, yeah, one to keep an eye on. Women, Ed, right? <laughs> they're not just content on ruining Ghostbusters, right? They're now, if reports are be to believed, they're going to ruin another much-loved franchise. They're going to redo Ocean's Eleven, but with all Dolly Birds. Now, I am not impressed by this because, you know, it's such a culturally prestigious artifact. <laughs> I mean, the Ocean's Eleven remake is fun. The original Ocean's Eleven might be one of the worst films I've ever seen. And, you know, it's weird that people aren't really complaining about this as much as they are about Ghostbusters. Yeah, it's almost as if the people who watched Ocean's Eleven are either too old or too young to care. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's almost as if they're not a bunch of 30 and 40 year old man babies complaining about something that doesn't matter. Mm. And it's it's almost as if this news as well is a, is a kind of like revealing peek behind the curtain of production meetings going on everywhere in Hollywood now that are like, in the old days it used to be, well, we'll do Die Hard, but we'll do it, you know, on a plane or on an oil rig or, you know, on a submarine or whatever. Now it's, we'll do X film with women. Uh, my friend Rachel once said that she wanted to put on a production of Glengarry Glen Ross with all women. And mm. uh, I think that, if they go that way, maybe eventually we can get that. Um, but yeah, I'd like the the. I think the only person they've announced attached to the all female version is Sandra Bullock, and she's you know a very charming star. And I I think if for nothing else, the fact that she co-starred with George Clooney does kind of add a, a wonderful symmetry to the idea of her playing the Danny Ocean role. Um, mm. I think it could be perfect. I, it could be good. There's like it's a very easy structure to redo, you know just assemble a fun cast of people and then plan a heist. Mm. It's hard to mess that up, but I guess... Is it, it going to feature... Who's going to be doing the bad Cockney accent is what I want to know. I was going to say the same thing. Probably Melissa McCarthy or someone, you know. It's, it's you know, there's only like 11 actresses in Hollywood that get cast in roles anyway, so... Mm. Yeah, so that could feature all of the women. Um, Jennifer so, Lawrence. Yep. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, we need, you need an older... Older ladies play the kind of Carl Reiner role, so someone like Sally Field could bring something to it. I, I was going to suggest um, Marissa Tomei mm-hmm. because she's now playing Aunt May in the next Spider-Man film, so she's she's now had her last fuckable day to uh, <laughs> use the Amy Schumer terminology. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, there's there's plenty of interesting like actresses. I'm sure could do it very well, and I I look forward to seeing how that one turns out. Mm. And and if they kind of run out at ten and have to get Rupert Everett in drag, 
Um, <laughs> the kind of to Alistair sim it up. Um, I guess we'll see. Fingers crossed for that one. I see it probably won't happen. But yeah, if it does, we'll, we'll kind of keep you up to speed. Speaking of remakes that no one wants to see, Neil Blomkamp's Alien 5 sequel has hit the skids, funnily enough, since Sir Ridley decided to kind of go big dick on the franchise and uh, lay down his uh, enormous tackle on the table and say, well, if anyone's going to do an Alien sequel, it's going to be me, and changes the name of Prometheus to Alien Paradise Lost. I'm not that fussed about losing out on Neil Blomkamp's Alien 5 because I've become incredibly tired of Neil Blomkamp in the the space of uh, three short films. It took him the three hours of his last two films to exhaust, (laughs) to prove that he had like two ideas Mm. and he was going to explore them until they were completely exhausted. Um, Mm. The concept design, his idea for like a fifth Alien film was most exciting when it was just a bunch of concept art he put on Instagram and there was no chance it was going to be made. So mm. the idea that it might not happen now doesn't feel as if we've lost anything because the Alien franchise has really only produced two good films in nearly 40 years uh, with two interesting but flawed films coming after that, then two terrible Predator crossovers and then Prometheus, the least said about which the better. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's kind of in the same realms the Die Hard franchise at this point where you look at it and the amount of quality filmmaking in there to the actual number of films made is pretty low and Mm. you kind of think there's not much they can really do now to ruin it so I don't care if it gets made or not but I I would rather it didn't get made because I don't want to have to sit through another terrible alien film yeah yeah I've thought of a better way of phrasing it I've I've grown tired of Neil Blomkamp's film (laughs) <laughs> because it's, the same. it's just it's just one film. He's made his film again. Uh, well, again, we'll, in the, the end of year show, we'll kind of get into to Chappie, I'm sure. But yeah, uh, not really too fussed about that. Another good uh, kind of I feel really negative today that I'm kind of rejoicing in films not being made. But I think this one's justified. The English language remake of The Raid is not going to happen now, which is good news for everyone. Unless you kind of like working on it, you need to feed your kids and stuff but uh, I've got every confidence you'll find another job. So just keep your chin up. Yeah, I mean, the two Raid films are both very, very good action films, but they're both very good within their specific context. And they're also very good because they're so unlike Hollywood action movies. You know, they are relentlessly brutal and kind of devoid of uh, sentiment, really. And Mm. you kind of get the sense that even if someone went into the remake with the fullest intention of trying to do something as as uh, that hit huge as close to the original as possible it would probably end up being watered down a fair bit and mm. you know again even if and if they did a faithful remake you end up in that situation of thinking well these two films already exist so why would you want to just kind of restage a bunch of the same stuff but with you know white actors mm. well you're not the nail on the head right there um, just to make it slightly more palatable for racists, um, <laughs> it's not a good reason to make a film, is it? No, and also, it's the cultural context of of the raid. The idea of being set in a kind of society that is so kind of unbelievably corrupt. Uh, you know, obviously, there's corruption in America, and there's things that there's lots of problems here, but it's not quite as bad as that. And it's mm. you, it does make you wonder, similar to the forthcoming remake of um, 
secret in their eyes, you wonder how much of the kind of cultural specificity would get lost if you don't have all this kind of like history of corruption there to inform the story. Mm, yeah, yeah. So I'm kind of pleased it's not happening. It doesn't need to happen. It never needs to happen in the first place. So, you know, good riddance, etc., etc. As we kind of stated at the start of the episode, we're doing Halloween. Uh, all kinds of scary stuff we can talk about. We have talked a lot about what scared us in the past, and Ed revealed, don't want to bring it up again, Ed, but you have a fear of being eaten by a rhino, yep. which is kind of fair. I have since developed a fear of being eaten by Komodo dragons, having read a terrifying interview with a nature photographer, a nature cameraman who works on the last kind of big BBC documentary, and they said that him and his crew were filming a kind of Komodo dragon hunt, but none of them really realised what they are in for, and they said they had to watch like four hours of a Komodo dragon eating a water buffalo, which was still alive, but it ate it through its anus. And I don't want a Komodo dragon in my anus, <laughs> which is it's not too much to ask, is it, Ed? Yeah, I mean, like you, you really shouldn't say that in this PC gone mad culture, but... <laughs> um, but and yeah no that that sounds horrifying i've been afraid of komodo kimono dragons wait komodo or kimono komodo komodo kimono's komono dragons they just turn up in a little silk kind of like but like kind of uh, dressing gown and that's 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 not scary at all kimono dragon it sounds like a great halloween costume <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah yeah like uh yeah komodo dragons i think i remember i think it was probably like a cartoon or something watching it in uh, as a kid, where these kids were on an adventure, I get the feeling it might have been Johnny Quest um, mm. being chased by kimono dra- Komodo dragons. And just since then, just kind of thinking, this is like the closest there is to an actual real dragon in the world. So I- I'll-, I'll still well clear, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Stay away. They only live on one island. So just don't go there. If, if you're scared of it, like just go there, it's fine. But yeah, uh, we're going to talk about some kind of uh, stuff. We'll kind of get things rolling with uh, this week saw the debut of Charlie Lyon's new film, Charlie Lyon. Regular listeners will know uh, we interviewed, uh, I think, last year or year before on the Docfest episode when he had his film Beyond the Clueless Out film. We enjoyed very much. His new film is called Fear Itself and uh, in a kind of interesting distribution move, it has been exclusively unveiled and premiered on the iPlayer, which uh, was something that was done earlier this year, I think, with Adam Curtis's film, Bitter Lake, a kind of iPlayer exclusive. And it went down pretty well. It was a good way to kind of schedule stuff. They don't have to kind of make a room for it in, in kind of jam-packed schedules. They can just put it on iPlayer. And if you watch it, that's cool, man. It's just there forever. We've watched it this week. What did you think to it? I thought it was very interesting. I, I wasn't entirely sold on the framing device where... It is essentially a documentary being narrated by a woman describing the kind of trauma of a, a, a accident, the details of which become more apparent as the film goes along and kind of exploring that that, that trauma through different films and also the, the images of hundreds of different horror films that are kind of thrown up there to illustrate the different points of her narration. I... I found the, although I found the framing device itself kind of a little strained, the actual narration itself I found very involving. And, and like Beyond Clueless, there is kind of a, a, a very hypnotic quality to someone kind of talking and, and laying out a thesis over all of these different kind of images that are drawn from all these kind of very disparate sources, you know, from dozens of countries and over over 100 years of cinema just kind of being all thrown out there to illustrate a, a particular point about the way in which we process horror. 
Mm. I like you say about uh, Beyond Clueless being hypnotic. I found Fear Itself to have kind of a similar effect, but I did feel a little bit like it, it was struggling at feature length. I felt like at times it kind of meandered a bit and I kind of found myself zoning out and not being quite as interested. I think it felt to me a film that probably could have been an hour. Yeah, and I think it, it doesn't help that it is, it's so expansive. Mm. Um, you know, it is it is drawing from so many years, as opposed to Beyond Clueless, which was focused very specifically on one uh, sort of nine-year period. Um, yeah. And so had a lot more uh, opportunities to kind of key in on certain themes. Um, the the strongest elements of the film were when it did focus on specific things, like there's a discussion in there of the Gus Van Sant film Elephant and mm-hmm. its relation to both the real-life horror of Columbine, which it kind of uh, d- doesn't recreate directly, but creates a fictionalised version of, and then the possible connection it has to a subsequent school shooting in which a, someone who committed a school shooting was reported to have watched the film about two weeks beforehand but uh, and then a line through the narrator asks you know or, or doesn't ask you know says that the the person was said to have fast forwarded to all the violent bits rather than focusing on the bits of people just kind of walking around to an amb- to ambient noise and mm. saying the guy who committed the, the killings was drawn to the violence and allowed himself to be influenced by it rather than being driven to do it just by the film and so it kind of things like that where it makes very interesting specific points about specific films are where it's at its strongest Mm, yeah it was cool as well to see footage from the alan clark film elephant Mm. from which elephant takes its name because i've only ever seen bits of it and every bit i see is kind of so enticing i want to see the whole thing but it's kind of hard to to get hold of hard to pin down that one i found that beyond clueless uh we talked about it at length on previous episodes um was cool because when i saw clips of films that i'd seen as a younger person i had a pang of nostalgia but then i was also fully into what was being said and kind of following it whereas i felt at times fear itself i wasn't as engaged with the narration I wasn't as engaged with the kind of the narrative thrust of what was being said. And I was more going, oh man, cool. I haven't seen this bit of ring for ages. That's awesome. And that's, I found myself a little bit kind of jolted out of it. I, d- I didn't think it worked quite as well as, as Beyond Clueless. Yeah. The the narrative aspect of it is, I think what kind of holds me, holds it back for me from being kind of as engaging because you are having to, they are kind of dropping this, these hints of the story and everything. And even though, I think the the way in which it kind of eventually reveals what the the film is about and dealing with more specific elements of grief grief and loss is quite moving in 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 a way but it's also an odd fit with the just the kind of showing images of the film and and for a lot of it I was just kind of pausing it to just note down on my phone okay that's that film and that's that film or like going on IMDb and looking at what the English language versions of all these old Jallo films were and stuff like that. Mm, mm. And it was it was kind of weird that they'd put films in there that weren't horror films, mm. which is fair enough because the film is actually about kind of fear and how you, like you say, how we process horror. But for instance, it would include a clip from Gravity, but a clip from Gravity in which no one was experiencing any kind of horror. Yeah, or stuff like there's a clip from, I think, Post Tenebris Looks, which is not a film that I would consider a horror film because it's a little too abstract for that. But 
it, it kind of works in the moment in relation to the to the to the story being told. But at mm. the same time, you're then jolted out of it because you're thinking, "Hang on, that's not really a horror film." Mm. Yeah, yeah, an interesting film nonetheless, and uh, it's on the iPlayer and will be indefinitely. So uh, do check it out because uh, anything Mister Line does is always worth a watch or a read. He knows his onions, that guy. When we kind of talked about things we were going to discuss on on this week's episode, something that Ed hit upon was what are kind of scary moments uh, from non-horror films, which has been really fun to think about this week. Yeah, I mean, this was sparked off by a discussion on a Facebook group I'm a member of where uh, people were basically having that discussion, what were uh, scary moments in films that aren't horror films and what kind of became apparent to me was that when I was thinking about this and when people were writing their choices, a lot of them came from David Lynch films. And Mm. I was thinking that David Lynch is someone who arguably has never made a horror film. I think something like uh, Mulholland Drive kind of comes closest, but even then his films are often so uh, kind of dreamlike and abstract that it's hard to classify them under any genre. But even the films that are kind of in a more identifiable genre will have one moment in it that is so horrifying and nightmarish that it's it, it kind of uh, falls over into the horror genre. The the example that uh, obviously comes to mind is the the man behind the diner in Mulholland Drive, which is uh, just a scene that I cannot watch. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. It is so so terrifying to me. But also uh, from a film like Wild at Heart, which is not not a horror film by any means, but it does have the scene where Willem Dafoe menaces Laura Dern in a hotel room, and the uh, hints and the implicit threat of sexual violence in there makes it one of the kind of most horrifying scenes to watch. Even though nothing horrifying happens, the the tone of it and the implications of it are absolutely terrifying. Mm, mm. The man behind the diner in Mulholland Drive is a remarkable piece of filmmaking because it... The kind of the edit doesn't come when you are almost kind of conditioned to feel it will. Mm. You watch the empty space and you wait for something to appear. You will. You you know this because you've seen this scene before in films, and you've kind of been led to that point by the music. And you're waiting for the you know them to the character to reach up, and then a cat jumps out from behind a box, and it's just nothing. But you you kind of know as a movie viewer and a watcher and a kind of consumer of uh, of kind of culture and things. You you kind of know when that's going to come and it just holds it off just a beat longer and then just kind of hits you with it. And it's just, yeah, it's hard to watch and it's yeah deeply unsettling, which is what David Lynch does. He is probably the best realizer of dreams and nightmares on, on film, but has never made a straight horror film. Like you say, I mean, probably something like the elephant man has those kind of almost kind of Gothic overtones to it. And it's kind of certainly framed like it at times, but you would never say that's horror film. Mm, also, I mean, like Eraserhead, which is so surreal and you know like a waking nightmare, but it is it is horrifying. And some of the images, like the bleeding chickens and things like that, are so just kind of stomach churning and and horrible to watch. But it doesn't like his films don't feel like they're trying to scare you. Mm. They feel like they're just presenting an image to you and then um they're not kind of not kind of overegging it in the way that horror films are kind of designed to do it, they're, mm. they're kind of weirdly matter of fact about how terrifying the images are 
then they leave it up to you to just kind of react to them. <laughs> mm. A lot of things that people are scared by in non-horror films come from kind of children's entertainments. Um, I think a kind of classic one uh, is the child catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, who uh, is genuine nightmare fuel for anyone of a, of a certain age. Yeah, that one is... That was certainly one, as a kid for me, that was one of the ones up there where you were watching just kind of a you know, happy family film with uh, songs about toot sweets and, uh, you know, you know, weird Bavarian castles and flying cars. And that's all very lovely. And then suddenly mm. just this kind of horrifying guy who runs around with a net and catches children and talks in this deliberately kind of off-putting way shows up. And then you just can't really, you know, sleep for a while. <laughs> Yeah, and I'd also throw Pinocchio in there as well, oh, which, yeah. you know, the the first kind of like 45 minutes is, I mean, apart from a couple of grotesque racial stereotypes, um, is kind of kind of fun and, and kind of fairy tale-ish. And then these kind of black figures are stealing boys and turning them into donkeys, and then they get eaten by a whale, and it's just horrifying. And also it does the classic horror film trope of when the boys are transforming into donkeys. It's all done in shadow. Mm. So the, the reaction of Pinocchio to seeing people change, uh, is, is kind of conveys the horror without it being shown. Uh, and that is, you know, horror filmmaking one Oh one. And it's in a kid's film about a, a, a puppet who comes to life. Uh, for me, it would be, uh, one of the early ones would be, from the film directed by Walter Murch, who, you know, we like a lot on this show, went to see him talk, yada, yada, yada. Um, mm. <laughs> you know, these kind of iconic moments of the shot reverse shot mythos. Um, yeah. yeah, he, he direct his one and only directorial effort is return to Oz, which is, uh, has a, a kind of a, a bunch of moments in it that are really nightmarish, such as the fact that it deals with the fact that Dorothy is in a mental institution and has received e- electroshock therapy, which for, you know, a follow-up to a classic musical is quite a bold gambit to, to make. Mm. But also you have things that are kind of more overtly horrifying, like the wheelers who just kind of move around and in this really inhuman way and look terrifying, or the scene where a bunch of severed heads that are being kept in cupboards just start screaming. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, they um the the kind of villain of the piece, a kind of a maleficent style kind of which yeah, just takes her head off and changes it whenever she she wants to. And yeah, Return to Oz, yeah, it's just been added to uh various Netflixes around the world. I'd recommend everyone watching that if you haven't seen it. Uh, I think it holds some kind of weird record that like it's the longest gap between an original and sequel. And it's a long time, it's like fifty or sixty years or something. But yeah, it's quite something. It is, it is kind of grotesque and uh, terrifying and also really good. And uh, Blue Peter presenter Peter Duncan plays TikTok uh, <laughs> in that. In fact, fans. Um, or did for one day at least. It was on, it was on Blue Peter, so I believed it as a, as a kid. I find the film, if I think about films as horror films, and I always remember someone saying that Paul Thomas Anderson was going to make a horror film after There Will Be Blood. And I remember him being asked in an interview, are you going to make a horror film? And he said, I just made one, which is an interesting way to kind of think about that film. But you probably could frame it that way if you really wanted to. But me wanting to frame non-horror films as horror films, I was thinking about it. And I think that the Larry Clark film, Kids, might be the most chilling horror film of our time. That is certainly very tough to watch. 
Mm. And it does have in its kind of finale, in its revelation of of, uh, which characters have got various horrible sexual transmitted diseases, does have the uh, inexorable horror, the inexorable dread of a horror film. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll kind of, I'll expand on my point further in the sense that if you watch something like, you know, Night of the Living Dead or, uh, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers or something where you watch it and you kind of can see a kind of unstoppable tide of, of, of horror and awfulness approaching and there's nothing you can do about it. Kids is that for me mm. in the sense that, like, there is literally nothing I can do about it because there will always be kids. And kids from, you know, time immemorial will always be arseholes. <laughs> and <laughs> this particular current generation of egregious, obnoxious, baggy trouser-wearing shitheads it's just kind of been perfectly crystallised in this one film in which is so unsympathetic towards everyone um, and, you know, kind of brutally cynical. Um, and it's also kind of really honest as well, which is the most terrifying thing about it. These A lot of the actors are real street kids and there's uh, lots of articles knocking around the web. You can kind of find them if you kind of just stick in. Where are they now? The kind of people, kids, so most of them are dead. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> because they were all real kind of junkies or just horrible people. And yeah, it's, I, I find that film absolutely terrifying. Even though like, and the weird thing is I, I was at that age of the kids of kids, but my life in kind of provincial Suffolk, where like, you know, the most mischievous thing I'd do was possibly shoplift a cream egg from the local co-op was, you know, absolutely terrifying to me. Yeah, I think there's a certain, with a lot of horror films like that, there is a certain there, but for the grace of God kind of feel to it. You know, it's like, yeah, like, that isn't my life, but that is someone's real life. And the fact it's not mine doesn't mean that it couldn't be if things had uh, had worked out in a kind of worse way. Mm. Yeah, yeah. If you lost the postcode lottery and managed to be <laughs> kind of born a douchebag in kind of on the lower west side or whatever but yeah i find that film you know genuinely horrifying i mean there are a lot of other films that are horrifying but aren't horrors things like fesson for example mm. yeah or, or or something like elephant is, a, is a, you know is a great example there's there's lots of films where i think just the the, the sense of knowing something is going to happen the thing you get that's going to happen even in something like fesson where it's kind of treated in a darkly comic way but knowing that something awful and awkward is going to happen in this situation and that this family is going to be blown apart and knowing that again that that sense of helplessness that sense of not uh not being able to do anything about it you know that really amplifies the sense that it's some some sort of horror if not it's not kind of the sort of thing where you would actually see it under horror in the the blockbuster videos that no longer exist. Mm, mm. What about particular moments in films that kind of scare you rather than, you know, whole films that have kind of unnerving sequences or elements? Uh, is there any moments in films that escape? For some reason, for me, it's the bit in Crocodile Dundee <laughs> where there's a really shameless, pervy bit where um, Paul Hogan is kind of spying on... Uh, his then wife, who is you know, for, for reasons unknown, uh, gets down into a bikini and then tries to fill up a water bottle and a crocodile jumps out and grabs her water bottle just so he can kind of come and save her and stick a knife in its head, etc. But no matter if it's on TV, uh, as it invariably is on ITV2 most of the time, I will watch it 
and uh, that still makes me jump every single time. It's it's basically the, the second best scare in films behind the head in Jaws. <laughs> For me, it would probably be the ending of Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Because... Spoilers ahead, everyone. Yeah, because... There's a there's a phenomenon which I think a lot of people are very familiar with, which is when you watch a film and you know something awful is going to happen and you know that things are going to... Or, or even not something awful, just something like sad or melancholy, but you love the film so much that you kind of almost wish that it was going to end differently. And even though you know it's not, each time you think, maybe this time Faye Dunaway is not going to get shot in the head. Mm. Uh, and that's the thing for me, is you watch it and you think, there's maybe this time Jack Nicholson will be able to p- convince the cops that John Houston is the bad guy. But no, they fade away, tries to drive away. Someone opens fire and then she's just cut her, her head with the gaping hole where her eye used to be, just falls out of the car. And mm. every time I watch it, even though that is one of my favorite films, I think it's one of the absolute most masterful films ever made. The The ending of it just fills me with this kind of real, dread and sense of just helplessness and horror at the how awful the world is mm, yeah yeah this the bleakness of, of that film that's kind of very horrible and in a similar kind of people being shot in the head taking you by surprise the exploding head in the proposition always oh, yeah. makes me kind of uh, leap because uh, like, even though there's guns being waved around and a kind of threat of danger you don't expect that yeah that that i remember when seeing that in the cinema and you're watching a film that's kind of very slow and hot, you know, you watch it and you really feel the heat of the Mm. desert and it has this slightly kind of sleepy people out in the middle of nowhere quality. And then suddenly just a man's head just completely explodes like scanners. Mm. It it does. It it is uh, shocking to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of, it's, I think that's when film violence is its most shocking, when it's most like real life, when violence in, in in real life isn't kind of protracted and built up with lots of tension and, you know, kind of huge, elegant fights. It's it's quick and bloody and brutal and horrible. Mm. Um, and I think films do it best when they do it like that. We talked beforehand, before we went on air, of using this platform to perhaps talk about some of our favourite horror films which is something we kind of haven't done. We have talked a lot about horror films. There are a lot of horror films on the alternate 100. But let's self-tickle and uh, talk about what we enjoy most in horror films. What is kind of your gold standard of horror, Ed? For me, it's probably a two-way tie between The Thing and The Shining Mm -hmm. because I love films that end in ing and (laughs) that take place mostly in the snow. Uh, yeah. But no, they're both films that I, I love for kind of different reasons. I mean, a lot of what's great about The Thing is that it is such a great... I mean, actually, in a way, they're both about people being trapped in the middle of nowhere and, and rising tensions. The only difference is that The Thing is somewhat more about rising tensions between all these dif- disparate characters who already seem to dislike each other quite a bit mm. before... You know, the aliens start showing up and they start wondering about whether or not one of them has been infected. And The the Shining has some of that as well, because you have the sense that uh, Jack Torrance was already broken in the head in some respect. And then just the ghost in The Shining were just really playing upon whatever was broken inside of him. 
Mm. But it, it doesn't have quite that same sense that the thing has of, yeah, these these guys have been trapped up here for a very long time. Tensions were going to, probably going to bubble over at some point anyway. It's just that the thing that sets them off is this horrible shape-shifting monstrosity. Mm. Yeah, it's those are two great examples of, of kind of like explicit and implicit horror. And the fact that The Shining, there is, you can see ghosts, but to what point it's a, a kind of part of uh, Torrance's imagination is is another matter entirely. Whereas in The Thing, there's a fucking head crawling off with tentacles. Yeah, the, uh, the and there is that thing that I think either Kubrick said or, or people have interpreted the film as, as saying that it is possible to say, with the exception of the, the moment when the fridge door opens, it's possible to interpret it as a film in which there are no actual ghosts. It's just Torrance's alcoholism and whatever mental illness he has just driving him to insanity. Um, and and I, li- I like that idea, even though it is obviously, ultimately it is about ghosts because they open the door for him. Um, but, you know, that that sense of ambiguity and the, the idea that there is something monstrous in Jack Torrance that the Overlook Hotel just kind of freeze is is what adds a lot to that film as does the, the you know just the fact that it's a very unnervingly constructed film in the use of the uh, electronic soundtrack the use of long uh, tracking shots to and steady cam shots to just create a sense of boredom but also to do that thing which is talked about in room 237 quite a bit about the fact that the film has a deliberately has something of an impossible geography to it. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, it, if you think about it too much, the the kind of uh, the blueprints don't make sense. And yeah, it's a good film, isn't it? Uh, Room two three seven. It's kind of crackers. How much um, The Shining has kind of driven people to kind of madness, which is ironic, given that's kind of what the film's about. It is. Yeah, I think. Uh, it's it's kind of divisive. I think people who watch it wanting to see a film about The Shining come away very disappointed mm. because it's not really about The Shining. It's about the people who are driven to find meanings in The Shining because that's what art does. Art, mm. as, you know, good art does dig into people and makes them kind of consider it differently. And, and really the people who believe that The Shining is about... Uh, the faking of the moon landings or that it's a, a metaphor for the uh, Holocaust or the genocide of the American, uh, the Native Americans, they're really just further along the scale of anyone who really thinks uh, seriously about film. Um, speaking of Room uh, 237, I watched uh, Rodney Asher, who directed that film's new feature, The Nightmare, the other day, and it's it's not as good as Room 237 just because... Uh, the 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 phenomenon of sleep paralysis is not to me as as interesting as the, these crazy conspiracy theories about The Shining, but it is a very very effective horror film because it's just these people talking about and then reenacting all these weird nightmares they've had about uh, kind of shadow demons menacing them and then being unable to move, and uh, I, I I'm happy to admit that after watching it I couldn't sleep. <laughs> Because wow. I think probably it's intent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is always a good sign. Um, I found, like, weirdly, 
alien did me as he as a youth as a kind of a, everyone thinks of it as a science fiction film but we've talked before it's a haunted house film but kind of set on a spaceship that kind of terrified me to to my core as a, as a young man but yeah it's uh for me we're talking about uh favorite horror films kind of one of my favorite horror films uh one of my favorite films of all time is the uh the Clouseau film uh Le Diabolique mm. um which um for me incredibly highbrow choice but it's a film it's probably the foreign film i've seen the most i've kind of seen that dozens of times and um it's you know for those who haven't seen it it's kind of one of the most kind of elaborate thrillers that if you kind of need any kind of endorsement it's that um alfred hitchcock missed out on getting the rights for the script for that because it's based on a novel by apparently 10 minutes he rang read the book rang the agent and they said we've just sold the rights to Clouseau. And uh, he has said it was his biggest regret in in kind of in all his life. And you know, given some of the things that <laughs> Mr. Hitchcock's done, uh, that that kind of says a lot. But it's you know that film is is kind of remarkable in the way that it builds firstly tension, it builds uh, kind of layers of suspicion because you don't know who to trust in in the film. It's about uh, a kind of domineering uh, head teacher of a school who is uh, having an affair with a woman and the, the women, his wife and the, and the kind of mistress kind of decide to kill him and they kind of team up and they decide to take him out and kind of execute this perfect murder. But yeah, you're not really sure who to trust, what's going on. And then it, the kind of, in film language terms, it, it builds really slowly this kind of fear of water, which is incredibly important in the film. Um, and it does it in so many ways that you don't even realise it. It's uh, it was working on a kind of serious kind of cognitive level somewhere. Uh, it's kind of uh, dripping into your subconscious in quite a remarkable way. And the finale of that film is 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 absolutely majestic. The one of the most satisfying kind of, but also awful payoffs of uh, of any film I can think of. That is one of the great endings, and I think one of the things about it that's so good is that it's one of those ones that has a kind of a kind of iconic image which uh, for those I won't spoil it for people who haven't seen it for people who have seen it uh, it involves a bathtub and mm-hmm. it is kind of a, a horrifying image and it was one that I was familiar with before I'd seen the film so I thought I knew what the film was about but knowing that image doesn't actually detail what's actually happening in that scene and I think that that's something that a lot of both really good horror films and really terrible horror films is that you know they they can have these kind of wonderful dark and strange and eerie images and they can that that can be what stays with you and can be uh, scary on their own kind of taken away from the rigors of the plot mm mm yeah yeah do you think that kind of foreign horror films um is is this just kind of uh, me warped by that kind of late 90s burst of kind of Japanese horror and Korean stuff a bit later. And then obviously before that, we had the Italian kind of giallo uh, stuff. Do you think that it's one of those genres that uh, is kind of no obstacle to language? And that's the reason why a lot of those foreign films find an audience abroad. I think that that plays a big part in it. I also think that one of the reasons why you see these kind of booms in horror from other, other countries that managed to find purchase in america and in in the uk is that they are they often have these kind of this cultural specificity to them which renders them alien to us and therefore more creepy and weird 
So in the case of something like Ring or Dark Water or The Grudge, they they have the the base layer of horror in that they are there are creepy things happening, but also there is that sense that we don't have a history of you know Korean water ghosts. We don't know what they are. So when you see one for the first time, it comes as something that is completely shocking and new. And mm. I, I feel that having things like that, or the the, the with the the Giallo thing, having not really having a history of that kind of storytelling where the emphasis is primarily on creepy and weird images over narrative, that really makes it stand out in a way that a, a similar English language story wouldn't stand out. Mm, yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. That's horror uh, this week. Let's uh, get into short reverse short recommends. You can kind of ignore those films that we just said were great. They are uh, recommended, you know, anyway. What are you going to pick this weekend? Uh, I've got two recommendations, a film and an article. The article is an article that was published on Deadspin this week, the pop culture and sometimes sport blog uh, or website, whatever you want to call it. And it's called The Hateful Life and Spiteful Death of the Man Who Was Vigo the Carpathian. Uh, Vigo the Carpathian, is, of course, is the villain from Ghostbusters 2. Who, uh, so it's, it's somewhat horror-related, but not really. Uh, who was played by a man called Norbert Group, And he has a fascinating and horrible life story, uh, which involves uh, being just kind of a real shit <laughs> for his entire <laughs> life. But also encompasses his dad, who was... Uh, one of the a bodybuilder who was friends of Arnold Schwarzenegger and was beloved by the people of Venice Beach, despite also being a guard at Buchenwald in his youth, and uh, it's a a fantastically strange and involving story that involves a lot of things like you know obviously Ghostbusters too, but also uh, Norbert Group was also a had a small role in Die Hard and he worked on the Werner Herzog film. Uh, Strozek, you know, so he's this weird Zelig style figure who just kind of shows up in all of these different points in pop culture, and but his and then he has these kind of very strange personal details which are all it's fantastically written, and I really recommend it. And I'll there'll be a notes there'll be a link to it in the show notes. And the film is the uh, a film that we've mentioned before on this podcast, the Spanish language version of Dracula from 1931, which is famous for being shot on the same sets as the more kind of well-known version of Dracula starring Bela Lugosi which was shot on the exact same sets but at night were after the English language crew had gone away and it is uh, better than the Bela Lugosi version partly because the crew of the Spanish language version were able to watch the rushes and basically think of ways to improve on what the English language people were doing but also because uh, the performers are a little. The, the performers are a lot more energetic and a lot more interesting in a lot of ways. They are trying to really adapt to the new world of, world of sound in a way that the Todd Browning versions actors were not. And it also makes a lot of interesting structural changes that you don't see in the uh, the Browning version, such as holding off the introduction of Dracula and making it more of a big deal because. Uh, for anyone who's seen the the Browning version of Dracula, he kind of just is introduced in a weird standalone scene that robs him of any tension when he introduces himself to Renfield later on. So it's just a more streamlined and eerie and atmospheric version 
of the the more famous film and uh, it's well worth watching it's included on basically all dvd and blu-ray versions of the uh, lugosi dracula uh but i think you can find it pretty easy online as well cool man uh, definitely gonna check that one out uh, i'm gonna recommend film that just shown two days ago at the Five and Dime Picture Show, which is uh, the film night, as many of you uh, will know, that I run uh, with the erstwhile Ryan Finnegan. Um, and it's a film I'd never seen before. It's the first film that we've actually shown that I've kind of uh, seen on the night for the first time. Um, it's a film called Teen Witch, um, which was sold to me as a, a dreadful film, um, which is a lot of fun, but is also too good in places to be considered truly awful. And I can confirm that all that is true. The film is truly dreadful uh, in many places. In fact, in most places, it's so kind of dated and and uh, kind of hackneyed and you've kind of seen it all before. Uh, if you've seen Teen Wolf, uh, you know, just change the sex and, and from wolf to witch. But there are just flashes of really kind of odd comic genius that kind of pop in that are... They, they just can't be an accident. They're all just kind of too uh, perfectly laid out to... Uh, be a coincidence or you know uh just kind of serendipity but it's it's actually kind of well worth a watch it's a huge amount of fun uh yes it's a hugely kind of enjoyable slice of cheesy 80s kind of quiffery but yeah it's also uh kind of hugely enjoyable in both the kind of schadenfreude kind of way and also in the the kind of jokes that i suspect were smuggled in by subterfuge uh, so it's on US Netflix, I think. Uh, so yeah, kind of seek it out. It's a lot of fun. Perfect. Friday Night Film. And that's it for this week. You can, as always, subscribe to us on the iTunes and uh, Stitcher Smart Radio and uh, Player FM and uh, all those other things. You can find us on Twitter, you can find us on Facebook, uh, and you can find us at our website, which is srspodcast.podbean.com. Uh, all that remains for me to say is thanks for listening. Uh, and until next time, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Let's go back the other way. No, just, just go up in and talk to him. Are you kidding? I'm so embarrassed. Look at how funky he is. Supersonic, idiotic, disconnected, not respected. Who would ever really want to go and top that? a waste of pretty face but hanging in your nose face i wish that you would take a look and really stop that stop that well stop that i don't really give up about trying to talk that talk that stop that i wish you finally take a real look and really stop that i will never be hip <laughs>